Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you no matter where you are in your journey towards Jesus. If you have any questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Good morning. I'm Fred. Now, I know not all of you know who I am, and that's okay, because I don't know who all of you are. You may have seen me hanging around here some, but we don't always know each other. But I suppose if if you picked up my phone and somehow figured out my passcode and tapped on the photos icon and began to scroll through all the pictures I've saved on my phone, you could learn some things about me and my family. And based on what you discovered, you could make an opinion about us. You'd discover I have the five cutest grandkids in all the world. Some of you other grandparents might want to dispute that and show me pictures of your grandkids, but let me just say, you'd be wrong. We have the cutest grandkids. You'd discover that Terry and I went with our daughter within this last year to the Grand Canyon. She lives out in California. We met her there. You'd see a picture at the Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois with my sisters and their husbands. And from those pictures, you might form an opinion of what our family is like. But as you realize, it wouldn't be an accurate opinion. How could it be? You wouldn't see one picture of a failure from someone in my family or a heartbreak they suffered or time spent in the hospital. You wouldn't see any pictures of funerals we've attended or when someone was so angry, or when someone, someone was hurt by the actions of another. You already understand, you cannot form an opinion of what our family is like by looking at even a thousand pictures on my phone. And maybe your opinion would be a little more accurate if you began to scroll through the texts or emails I've sent or received, but even with that, we all know that would not be an accurate or complete picture of who I am and what my family is like. But I've noticed something. There are way too many people who get their understanding of who God is from a picture they've taken, from a snapshot. So so when a tragedy happens in a godly family, a, a picture is taken and stored in their personal iCloud. Or when a father who says he's a Christian and he sure acts like it at church, but behind the closed doors of his home, he is anything but Christ-like. Another picture stored. Someone from church gets sick. Everyone prays, but the person dies. A picture is taken. Someone else from church gets sick. Everyone prays and the person gets well. Another picture is taken and put in our iCloud. This time a positive picture. Someone has a remarkable conversion experience, picture taken. Someone is set free from an addiction and given a fresh start in life, a picture taken. A marriage is restored, a picture taken. So when the good pictures start to balance out the bad pictures, then we start to feel better when we're told to love God and trust God. But you see what we're doing, don't you? We're creating a God with our own images our own pictures. 
We're creating a God with our own images, and we're not really seeing the whole picture of who God really is. And so if our lives are good, our God is good. But if our lives are bad, then our God is bad. You probably know someone who said something like, don't talk to me about God. I prayed that my parents or my adult children wouldn't get a divorce, but they did. So don't talk to me about a God who answers prayer. So you know what kind of pictures they've been storing away. I asked God to heal, but. I asked God to change that person, but. And you probably know someone else who said something like, God is so wonderful, he answers all my prayers just the way I want, and if he isn't doing that for you, then there's something wrong with your faith. There's a huge difference between knowing about God based on the pictures we have taken of him and really, really knowing him. Well, in John chapter 9, we see a number of people who had created their God with the images they had been taking and storing away, and it was absolutely an inaccurate picture of whom God really is. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I like the humor. I like the sarcasm. I'm especially challenged by seeing Jesus basically saying, God isn't who you created him to be. Now, John, in his gospel account of Jesus' life, only tells of six miracles that Jesus performed. He certainly could have told more. All the other gospel writers did. And in fact, the very last verse in the gospel, John says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But John chose out of all of the miracles he saw, chose six. So, so he must have considered these to be the most important ones. And this one in John chapter 9 is one of the six. If you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn over to John the ninth chapter. And if you have your Bibles or your phones or other devices with you, just go ahead and read this story as I'm preaching along. We're not going to take the time to read the entire story right now. But keep your Bibles open because we're going to keep referring back to the story. You'll quickly discover it is one great story. You'll see why it's one of my favorites. A blind guy, a guy who's been blind since birth, is healed by Jesus. No one brings him to Jesus, not his parents, not his friends. He doesn't even go to Jesus on his own. Jesus goes to him. Jesus chose him. Jesus chose to go to him and miraculously heals the guy. I love the miracle. I love how sarcastic this guy was with the Pharisees. I love how his understanding of Jesus grew. In the beginning, he said, some man healed him. And then the next time he was questioned, he said, the person who healed me was a prophet. And by the time you get to the end of the story, he, he says, he, he's calling Jesus Lord and worshiping him. I think it's a hoot that John made perhaps the greatest understatement in all of Scripture. In verse 7, he, he tells us that Jesus said to the guy, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John wrote, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Came home seeing? Are you kidding me? Could, couldn't John have come up with something better than that? How, how about came racing home? Or did cartwheels all the way home? Or came dancing and shouting and high-fiving and kissing everyone in sight? Get it? Kissing everyone in sight. He couldn't see anyone moments before, but now he's kissing everyone in sight. He's never seen anyone before. The guy's been blind since birth. He's never seen a tree. 
He's never seen someone smile at him or frown at him. He's never seen a sunset. He has no clue what a camel looks like. And all John can say is, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. That's just a bit of an understatement. I, I could spend all day talking about this guy's miraculous encounter with Jesus, especially his comments when he's being cross-examined by the big boys from the temple, by the keepers of the law. He said, and you can almost see the smirk on his face, he said to them, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Explain that, big boys, you hot shots from Jerusalem. I was blind, but now I see. And then when they continued their questioning and saying, how did he open your eyes? Finally, he had had enough of their questioning, and he said, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You know he said that with a fire in his eyes that can now see them and a smirk on his face. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, we can't just look at this encounter between Jesus and this blind man because we see Jesus, by his action, saying to everyone involved in this story, I'm not who you pictured me to be. And God isn't who you created him to be with the pictures you have taken of him. We see all these different people encountering Jesus all in this one story. So let's look at the opinions others had formed of God by the images they were storing in their mind. Let's look first at their opinions and, and the different people involved in this story. Well, number one, you've got to start with Peter and the boys. You see, they had stored images in their minds and hearts that said, if good things happen to you, then you are blessed by God. But if bad things happen to you, then you weren't blessed by God. They had, I'm sure, yanked that Old Testament Bible verse out of its context that said, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, Exodus 34, 7. And they had stored that verse, that, that memory, that image in their memory bank. So when they saw this blind guy, they jumped to the conclusion that either he had sinned or his parents or his grandparents had sinned, and his blindness was God's punishment. That was their opinion. And then they learned that he had been blind since birth. And they didn't understand how he could have sinned before he was born. So they went up to Jesus, verse 2, and said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I think Jesus probably shook his head and thought, you just don't get it. Quit making God out of the images you have stored away. But he said, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed. And they began to realize what they thought about God, their opinion. The picture they had created was so wrong. And they began to realize that God could even use times of suffering and times of great difficulty for his glory. And you understand, they were going to need to know that and believe that and understand that with all of their hearts because it wasn't going to be all that long before they were going to watch Jesus being crucified. And if they still thought the same way they did on this day, that if bad things happen to you, then you are being punished by God, they would have abandoned Jesus completely. Well, that's the last we hear of the disciples in this story. I think their opinion of God was changed. They deleted the faulty image from their iCloud that said, if bad things happen to you, then God is punishing you. The next ones who were challenged by Jesus and how he responded were the people. 
this formerly blind man's friends and neighbors. Look at how they responded, verse 8 and following. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man called Jesus, made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Why'd they do that? You see, they thought they weren't spiritual enough, or we aren't smart enough. We need to go to our religious leaders to find out if this was an act of God or not. We can't determine that on our own. They really thought God was too lofty, too awesome for them to ever have a personal relationship with God. That was their opinion. After all, only the chief priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could make a sacrifice for their sins. And they really thought they couldn't know God personally or know whether what they saw was from God or not. That was the picture they had created of God because of the images they had stored away, because of what they had been taught about God. They thought God was too lofty for them to ever know. They needed the priests and the Pharisees to tell them about God. That was their opinion. The next ones who were absolutely 100% sure their opinion of God, the picture they had created of God was accurate, was the Pharisees. They had been collecting pictures of God for years. They had God all figured out. First, they knew the Messiah could not possibly be this out-of-work carpenter from Nazareth. They knew he had to have been born in Bethlehem because Micah, their prophet, had written he would be born in Bethlehem. But you see, they didn't know Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And they also knew the Messiah would never, ever break their precious Sabbath laws that they had written. And Jesus had just healed once again on the Sabbath, which was against the law. So because of their opinion of who the promised Messiah was going to be, there was no way this Jesus could be the Messiah. And they knew, they knew God would never listen to a lawbreaker like Jesus. And they would have quoted Isaiah 59 too. But your iniquities have separated you from God, Jesus. Your sins have hidden his face from you, Jesus. He will not hear you, Jesus. But then, they really didn't know what to do with this particular miracle. Because for all of their lives, these learned leaders, these respected teachers, had been teaching and proclaiming that one of the ways you'd be able to tell who the true Messiah was, was by him healing the blind. That miracle had never happened before. Not one time in the Old Testament were they told of a blind person being healed. And they were always quick to quote their most revered and famous prophet Isaiah, who said of the coming Messiah, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me for recovery of sight for the blind. And in that day, the eyes of the blind will see, Isaiah 29. And your God will come. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, Isaiah 35. And they would quote those scriptures and others and would teach, you'd be able to tell who the Messiah was because he and he alone would heal the blind. But now they didn't know what to do. Because they were so sure Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. But he had just healed the blind. 
and then one other who had formed an opinion of who God was and had an inaccurate picture of God and what he could do were the parents of the formerly blind guy. If anyone knew this guy was blind since birth, it would be his parents. But because of what they had seen, because of the images they had been storing in their mind, they knew if we say, yes, he's our son, and yes, he's been blind since birth, and yes, Jesus healed him, then they knew they would be in big trouble, and they would be kicked out of the synagogue, and God wouldn't have anything to do with you if you were kicked out of the synagogue, or so they thought. So these parents wouldn't even stand up for their son. When questioned by the Pharisees, they said, verses 20 and following, we know he's our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. A ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. A and then John added this little commentary. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. So obviously they knew in their hearts that not only had Jesus healed their son, but that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. But they were too afraid to say so. When our opinion of who God really is and how he works is being challenged, we have some options on how we're going to respond. Let's look at those options. First is the response to this miracle. No one's rejoicing. Did you notice? No one throws a party. No one celebrated. The, the people debated rather than celebrating. The neighbors debated whether this was even the same guy that they had seen begging for all these years. The Pharisees hated rather than celebrating. They hated the guy. They hated his parents. They especially hated Jesus because he was challenging their opinion of who the Messiah was. And the parents equivocated rather than celebrating. They knew he was their son. They knew he was born blind. But they didn't want to admit that a miracle was performed by Jesus the Messiah. Their responses, debate, hate, equivocate. Debate, hate, equivocate. Their responses were outrageous in light of what they had just seen. But also, number two, their reasoning was even more outrageous. No one, no one except the formerly blind guy wanted to accept that a miracle of God had happened because Jesus didn't fit their image that they, of God that they had created. It'd be like this. When I was a teenager, probably 15 or 16 years old, I was swimming in a lake at our church's campgrounds. Now, now they had an absolutely great dock at this lake. It wasn't a floating dock 12 by 12 or something like that. It wasn't one of those blobs where you bounce people off of into the lake. It was built with huge poles, like telephone poles, driven into the lake bed. And they had different, three different levels of platforms that you could dive off of into the water. It was spectacular. Dangerous. Somebody was always getting hurt there. It was dangerous, but it was spectacular. It was so much fun. And they had on the beach a sign that said, if lifeguards are not on duty, then you were to swim at your own risk. And then there were specified times listed when lifeguards would be on duty. And we all knew who the trained and certified lifeguards were. We knew who they were. And, and to be honest with you, we, we kind of just ignored them. We knew who they were. They, one would sit on the dock with a whistle around their neck, and one would sit out in a boat a little ways out in the lake, but, but we never really thought about them. 
Well, one day I was swimming at the lake during the posted time when lifeguards were on duty, the beach and the lake were really crowded that day. And, and I sort of waded in and I was about chest deep, just about ready to swim out to the dock when I saw something that was kind of at my feet under the water. And I looked again and it was a little blonde-headed girl underwater, kind of lifeless, probably about four years old. Now, I had two choices. I could look for a certified, qualified lifeguard and yell and try to get their attention over the noise of the crowded beach, or I could reach down and pull the girl out. I chose to pull her out. I pulled her up and sort of slung her to my chest and, and over my shoulder, and with that, she started coughing and spitting up water, and I carried her to the beach. She was okay. She was fine. Didn't think much about it. No big deal. I just went back to swimming. But later that evening, as I was walking over to the church service, that little girl came running up to me with her parents, and she was shouting to her parents, there's the boy who rescued me. There's the boy who saved me when I was drowning. And her parents began to express appreciation and all that stuff. But what if they had come up to me and had asked, are you a trained lifeguard? Well, no, 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 I'm not. Are you certified to be in the life-saving business? No. Well, it doesn't count then. The sign says a certified trained lifeguard was to be on duty, and they were supposed to rescue our little girl if she drowned. And so we're going to throw her back in the lake because what you did doesn't count. As outrageous as that would be, that is exactly the reasoning behind how everyone reacted to Jesus healing this blind man. They were all saying, it doesn't count, it doesn't count, it doesn't count. We'd rather have him blind than to have you heal him. I wonder who really was blind that day. The disciples didn't see a man. They saw a sinner who didn't deserve grace. The neighbors didn't see a man. They, they saw novelty. The church leaders didn't see a man. They saw a technicality being broken. The parents didn't even see their son. They saw social difficulty. In the end, no one saw him. And verse 34 tells us, and they threw him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. They said, you're not welcome here anymore. We'd rather have you blind than to say that Jesus guy healed you. That was one of the options, that, that, and that's what they chose because their opinion of God and the Messiah, which they had created, was being challenged. Well, let's look at the outcome. Let's look at the opportunity the formerly blind guy took advantage of, the opportunity. We're not told the outcome of this miraculous encounter for Peter and the boys. They're not even mentioned again. We don't know if the neighbors or parents changed their mind and ever stood up for him and for what was right. We're not told. We don't know if any of the Pharisees decided Jesus truly was the Messiah, that, that he was prophecy fulfilled. We do know that some of these guys were probably the ones that were leading the charge and making sure Jesus would be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. But we also know, we're told in the book of Acts, that after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, Acts 6-7. So, so maybe there were some who couldn't shake the nagging feeling. The seed planted after seeing the blind man healed that maybe this Jesus was the Messiah. And then after the resurrection and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and now the boldness of the disciples and how so many people were now accepting Jesus as the Messiah, maybe all of that cemented it for them and they too chose to believe. We don't know the outcome of the encounter any of them had with Jesus that day. 
But we do know the outcome for this guy who was born blind, but was miraculously healed and the opportunity he took advantage of. Number one, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus for who he really was, not from the images of God he had stored away. For the first time in his life, he had an accurate picture of who God really is. And by seeing him, I mean really seeing him, he came to really know who God was and what he was all about. You see, I think his opinion of God, what he thought about God before this encounter with Jesus, was probably the way the disciples thought. He, he probably thought his blindness was because God was punishing him for his sin or someone's sin. I think he thought the way his neighbors did or the way his parents did. But because of this encounter with Jesus, because of this encounter, we see an amazing transformation taking place in this man's life. Notice the progression in his thinking. I mentioned it earlier. When he first was asked how he was healed, he responded by saying, some man called Jesus healed me, verse 12. And, and the next time he's questioned, the guy said, the person who healed me was a prophet, verse 17. And by the time you get to the end of the story, we see him calling Jesus Lord and worshiping him, verse 38. He came to really understand who Jesus was when he really saw him. So he could not only see Jesus, not only did he have an accurate picture of who God is, but this is the big deal, his response. The natural response, once he saw God as he truly was, he began to worship him. When Jesus spit in the dust and made some holy putty, he didn't say, oh, yuck, don't put your spit on me. When Jesus said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash off the mud, he didn't say, but it's the pool of Bethesda where people get healed, not the pool of Siloam. And by the way, I'm blind. How am I supposed to find my way to that pool? And after he got kicked out of the synagogue and was all alone and not even his parents came to his defense, and when Jesus sought him out and found him, the guy didn't whine and say, I thought my life would be better after, after you healed me, but it's worse. I can't go home. My parents don't want me. I can't go to church. I've been kicked out. I can't even beg for a living. I'm not blind any longer. No whining, no complaining. He simply recognized Jesus as Lord and worshiped him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. I don't think that means he said, Lord, I believe. And then all of a sudden broke out singing, how great is our God or I am who you say I am. So often we equate worship with the singing we do on Sundays at church. We say, that's worship. And while that definitely is a part, an important part of worship, that isn't the totality of what our worship should include or be. Authentic worship includes how we live our life. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So authentic worship isn't simply the songs we sing with hands lifted and emotions we might feel. It's how we live our life. It's being obedient to the Word. So when we forgive whatever grievance we might have with someone and keep no record of wrongs, that's worship. When we genuinely repent of sin, when we walk away from that sin with the intent of never being involved in it again, 
That's worship. When we love that person who thinks differently and speaks differently and acts differently than us, that's worship. When we extend grace to that one who doesn't deserve grace, that's worship. When we turn the other cheek and go the second mile and the third mile and we forgive 70 times, seven times, that's worship. When we love our spouse and respect our spouse the way Christ loved the church, that's worship. The formerly blind guy said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. I think he lifted great praise, not simply for what Jesus had done, but for whom he now believed Jesus to be and how he lived his life was radically changed because somehow he knew that too was worship. Okay, let's bring this all home to you and me. If you're in one of those difficult spots in your life and, and you don't understand what's going on, everything you thought you knew about God, you're not so sure now. If you've created a God with your own images and it's left you feeling scared and directionless and empty and you're not really sure what you should do, and even if the people in your life aren't willing to back you up or encourage you or stand with you like the blind man's parents and friends, let me tell you, just as Jesus came to this man, he is coming to you and he is saying, this is who I really am. Understand, he has and he is coming to you. In fact, he has chosen you. Just as Jesus chose to go to this man, Jesus has chosen to come to you. Understand, you are chosen. He knew about the past, and he cho still chose you. He, he knew what others said about you, and he still chose you. He knew your shortcomings and mistakes and out-and-out -out sin, and he still chose you. Peter wrote it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm pretty sure the Greek word for everyone means everyone. That includes you. That includes me. We are chosen. I don't know if there's a better feeling in the world to really know and believe you have been chosen. Remember another time I was a kid out at our church campgrounds. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and one of the big deals during camp meeting was all the older teens and men would play very competitive games of softball every afternoon. Every day I'd show up with my glove and my baseball cap, and every day I'd be disappointed because they had enough players and they didn't need some little kid just filling a spot. So, so I was never chosen until one afternoon. They were a player short. And Sam Dukeson, I'll never forget Sam. Sam was the captain of one team. He looked over all the kids who were still standing there, hoping, hoping, hoping to be chosen. And for some reason, he picked me. I like being chosen. Later on in the game, the opposing team had a big left-handed slugger come up to bat. This guy had played a couple years of professional baseball, and he could just kill the ball. Well, they had put me out in right field where they thought I'd do the least amount of damage. Just stick the kid out there. But when this guy came up to bat, Sam, the captain of the team, came out to right field and he said, I'll play out here while he's up. You just back me up. Guy stepped up to the plate. The pitch was thrown. This guy absolutely crushed the ball. In fact, it sailed over Sam's head. Our team groaned. The other team cheered. But they all forgot about the little kid who was backing Sam up. And I caught the ball and we won the game. As we were walking back in, Sam put his arm around my shoulder and he told me what a great catch I had made. And then he said, you show up every day to play because I'm going to pick you every day to be on my team. 
And you know what? He did. Every day I came to the field already knowing I would be chosen. We like to be chosen. It gives us confidence to know that someone has confidence in us. And one of the true pictures we see of God from this story is God has chosen you. Doesn't matter what the enemy whispers in your ear. Doesn't matter how often he reminds you of past failure or past it. Doesn't matter what parents or neighbors or even religious leaders might say about us or think about us. We are chosen. And Jesus has come to us not as an afterthought, not because there was no one else. Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, from the beginning, God chose you. From the beginning, God chose you. You may say, what about my past? Isn't that so cool? God knew all about your past, and he still chose you. You may say, but I've never been chosen for anything. And I say, well, you are now. You are chosen. You may say, I've failed at everything I've ever tried. I've been told I can't succeed or I'm stupid that I don't belong. Hey, understand, this isn't a parent speaking to you. This isn't a teacher or a boss or a spouse or a bully. This is Almighty God, the creator of the universe. This is the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God saying, I've chosen you. I want everyone to come to repentance. I want to be in a relationship with you. Don't believe the picture you have created or the image of God that Satan has created that God wouldn't want to have anything to do with someone like you. The accurate picture of God is, from the beginning, God has chosen you. Folks, that's the first thing we need to realize. Because the enemy loves to try to convince us we aren't worth anything to God. And nothing could be farther from the truth. And God wants you to know him and see him as he really is. Don't come to him demanding anything. Don't come insisting that he heal the hurt or fix what is broken or change this person or that person. Just come saying, I need to see you, and then worship him. Worship is a choice we make, not necessarily a feeling we have. God wants you to know him and see him as he really is. If you would simply say to him, I need to see you as you really are, not from the pictures I've taken and stored away, but who you really are, and then begin to worship him, authentically, intentionally begin to worship him, the one who loves you unconditionally, the one who chose you, the one who will never leave you or forsake you, the one who calls you his child, the one who will redeem and restore you, the one who extends grace and mercy, the one who lavishly pours out his love on you. If we would do that, if we would begin to authentically worship him, worship him by how we live our life, by how we respond to the people in our life, especially the irritating people in our life, by how we handle our finance, everything. If we would worship him in word and deed, what we say and how we live, everything would change. Everything would change. Everything would change. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Here's what I know. I know Jesus Christ, His Spirit, is here right now. And He has come to you, us, and is coming to us. And He's saying, just as He did to the formerly blind guy, I am the one speaking to you, speaking to your heart. I have chosen you. If you would choose not to demand anything from Him, but simply begin to authentically, intentionally worship Him,
If you would repent of those things that you need to repent of, those things now that you think are so devastating would not destroy you. Those things that are robbing you of joy and keeping you awake at night and twisting your stomach in knots, they may not all go away in an instant, in a moment in time, but you would know you are not alone. And he will give you everything you need and he will be glorified. You see, in this moment, I'm wondering if you need to choose to simply, humbly, intentionally, authentically worship him in spite of what anyone else might do or think. Will you choose to worship him? You and I will be changed when we authentically worship him. Do you have an accurate picture of who God really is? Or do you have a God you've created with your own images? Will you choose to worship the one true living God who has come to you and has said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you, speaking to your heart. Just before we sing, I want to give you a chance to respond. If God has been speaking to your heart this morning, while we're singing, if you would want to come and kneel at an altar and authentically, intentionally worship our Lord, if you need to repent and say, Lord, I'm turning away. I'm walking away from that sin. Or if you need to say, Lord, I need to see you as you really are. I'd invite you just to come and kneel and pray. I know you can do it right where you might be standing. But personally, I found when I kneel at an altar and I cry out to God, somehow Satan is disarmed because one of his favorite tools is taken from him. When I just stood and prayed, later Satan would come and whisper in my ear and try to convince me nothing had happened. But when I knelt at an altar and prayed, somehow I knew God had done a work in my life and my heart, and Satan wasn't able to convince me otherwise. So I want us to stand together and sing. And if you want, just come and kneel at the altar and pray and worship. I invite you to come. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have any questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.